Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Brian Katlos returns to the show. On April 9th, 2021, Professor Katlos joined the show and we had a conversation that explored what scholars know about the previous Umayyad Caliphate gaining hegemony in the Iberian Peninsula at one point in time. Then on June 11th, 2021, Professor Katlos came back on the show and we spoke about and explored what scholars know about what life would have been like in the Emirate of Cordoba. The Emirate of Cordoba eventually evolved and became a different state called the Caliphate of Cordoba. And so today, Dr. Katlos is back on the show and we're going to speak about those circumstances that surround the period in time in which the Emirate of Cordoba became the Caliphate of Cordoba. Dr. Katlos is Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, based in the US. He's also Research Associate in Humanities at the University of California, Santa Cruz, also based in the US. He's co-director of the Mediterranean Seminar, and he's the author of four scholarly books. And as an example, he's author of the book, Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain, which was published by Basic Books. And Professor Katlos joins the show today from the state of Colorado in the U.S. Welcome back on the show, Brian. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be here. Good to connect with you again, Brian. So to create sufficient background and context, Brian, can you share what the caliphate of Cordoba was? And we are obviously speaking about more the... The inception, the inception period of that state, but please don't feel the need to limit the response to only the that early period to create enough background and context for for the, for the state itself, and then we'll obviously work our way into the details in the the period of time in which the 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 Emirate of Cordoba became the Caliphate of Cordoba. Okay, well, why don't I start with a little bit of an, an overview for your listeners who may not uh, be familiar with the story. So, uh, in brief, uh, in the year 711, as part of the process, this enormous uh, and dramatic process of expansion of the Arabo-Islamic world, uh, in the year 711, uh, a Muslim uh, army, Arab-led, but largely made up of uh, North African Berbers, crossed over from North Africa to what was the Visigothic uh, kingdom uh, of, uh, of Spain and uh, essentially overran the kingdom. The kingdom was, uh, uh, had various internal political problems which made it a sort of easy prey for uh, these Arab-led armies. They overran the Visigothic kingdom and essentially conquered uh, almost all of what's now Spain and Portugal and a good chunk of southern France. Now, once... Uh, they had established themselves there. The, the uh, area that's uh, Spain now in Portugal, which was called by the Arabs Al-Andalus, became a sort of province of, uh, of the caliphate. At that time, the, uh, the caliphate was ruled by the Umayyad family, who were based in Damascus, uh, Syria. And just a few decades after the conquest of, uh, of Al-Andalus, uh, 
there was a tremendous upheaval in the Islamic world, and, and part of that included a, a revolution, a revolution which brought down the Umayyad dynasty in Syria and installed a new caliphal dynasty, uh, the Abbasids, who were based uh, eventually in Baghdad. And the Abbasid Caliphate is the one that we associate with what's often romantically referred to as the golden age of, of Islam, Harun al-Rashid, Sinbad the Sailor, so on and so forth. So now when the Abbasid revolution took place, one of the things that the rebels wanted to do was uh, eliminate the Umayyad family, completely wipe them off the face of the earth so they wouldn't cause any trouble. And they almost succeeded, except for one prince, a young prince named Abdurrahman managed to escape and he made his way westwards and, and holed up for a while in uh, modern uh, Algeria with the, the, the kinsfolk of his mother. His mother was uh, a former Berber slave. And once he had sort of gathered his forces, he uh, crossed over to uh, Al-Andalus and declared himself uh, to be the new prince of Al-Andalus. Uh, a civil war started uh, pitting him and his allies against uh, the Abbasid uh, governors of Al-Andalus, and Abdurrahman triumphed, and he became emir or prince of Al-Andalus. And this is the beginning of what's known as the, uh, the Umayyad Emirate of Cordoba. So uh, in the centuries that followed, the uh, Abdurrahman and his descendants essentially established this Muslim kingdom in Spain, which was independent from the Abbasid uh, Caliphate, uh, obviously, but uh, they never claimed the title of Caliph. And the reason was, was that uh, there was a sense in the Islamic world that, you know, the Islamic world should be fundamentally unified and there could, be, there could only be one Caliph. And so they kind of, you know, Abdurrahman and his descendants sort of coolly acknowledged or didn't dispute the, the title of caliph that the Abbasids held. And the Abbasids, for their part, you know, unable to do anything about the, the Umayyads in Spain, kind of ignored them. Now, all of that would change in uh, the year 929, when one of Abdurrahman's uh, descendants, uh, Abdurrahman III, who was prince of Al-Andalus, declared himself to be uh, the caliph of, of, of Islam. And this... Uh, this initiated a new era in the history of Islamic Spain, uh, which is known as the uh, Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba. And the caliphate would last until, well, not very long. It was a sort of short but glorious history. Uh, the caliphate uh, came down in, uh, in the course of uh, an internal bureaucratic coup followed by a civil war uh, less than 100 years after it had been declared. And uh, that sort of paved the way for the, the transformation and eventual conquest of Islamic Spain by the Christians. So that's kind of an overview. So we have the Islamic conquest in 711. We have the establishment of the Emirate of Cordoba in uh, 756, I believe it was, by Abdurrahman I, and then the declaration of the Caliphate of Cordoba in, I believe it was 929, by Abdurrahman III. So that's the, that's the kind of overall picture. Okay. Thank you for expanding on that, Brian. So what were the circumstances that, that existed that had 
Abdelrahman III make the what sounds like a very big decision. Perhaps it was, uh, perhaps it was, certainly unpre unprecedented in the in the period of time of the caliphate of Cordoba. You can expand on on, on that if it, if if that kind of decision had happened at all um, in history to that point in time, where a, a, a given state declared themselves to be caliphate, whereas there's also the the a, a caliphate. Uh, that already existed as well, whether it's the Umayyads or the the Abbasids or or a different um, a different caliph, um, and so and what were and so can you expand on what the circumstances were around why Abd al Rahman the third decided to have the state of the Emirate of Cordoba become a caliphate? Yeah, well, there was there were a few things going on. This was uh, the period from really the mid ninth century to uh, the mid-10th century was a period of great uh, upheaval and transformation uh, in the Islamic world. And a few things were happening. By the mid-800s, this new Abbasid uh, uh, caliphate uh, that had been established in Baghdad uh, was entering into a sort of political crisis. And... Uh, it was punctuated by a series of struggles for the throne uh, of the caliphate, by a series of, of civil wars and rebellions, and that had a couple of effects. One of, one of these was that a lot of the, let, me, let us say, cultural figures and intellectual figures who had, uh, who had found patronage in, uh, in, in Islamic Baghdad and who had created this sort of uh, cosmopolitan uh, golden age culture uh, in the Islamic East, found that the situation uh, was no longer really tenable for them. It was getting too dangerous in, in Baghdad and in the Abbasid Caliphate. And so a lot of them began to move westwards to other Islamic lands, seeking basically employment and patronage. And so what this did was, up until this point, uh, Al-Andalus, the Emirate of Cordoba, had been sort of this, this provincial backwater, this sort of poor uh, fringe kingdom that was kind of, you know, in the boondocks sort of thing. And so what happened was, as these scholars and intellectuals came westwards and settled in Cordoba, they brought this culture of the East with them, right? And they began to sort of inspire the emirs to look for new ways to consolidate their power and to establish the sort of imperial institutions that had originally developed in Persia and had been co-opted and adapted and further developed within the Abbasid Caliphate. We have this sort of idea, you know, it's a little bit exaggerated, of the Abbasid Caliphate as this, this uh, you know, highly tuned uh, bureaucratic state. And certainly for the time, it was. And so the rulers of Al-Andalus were able to sort of co-opt this model and begin to develop a sort of more centralized kingdom themselves. But that was only one thing that was going on. There was another thing that was going on. Part of the, the impetus behind that rebellion in the year 750 that had brought down the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba was tensions between two different groups of Muslims. Sunni Muslims who are 
you know, the numerical majority within Islam, and Muslims who were becoming known as uh, Shia. That's to say, uh, Shia is a, is a contraction of the Arabic Shia Ali, which means uh, the party or the followers of, of Ali. And the tensions between uh, Sunni and Shia Muslims comes down to a number of things, one of which is, is who should have become uh, caliph after uh, the death of Muhammad. Sunni Muslims uh, were in favor of, uh, of uh, the person who did become caliph, whose name was Abu Bakr, whereas Shia Muslims believe it should have been uh, Muhammad's uh, cousin and son-in-law, Ali uh, ibn Abi Talib. So there's a, there's a sort of political rift within Islam. And Shiism and Sunni Islam kind of developed in different ways. Shia Islam tends to be much more esoteric in orientation, much more sort of uh, apocalyptic, and much more sort of tuned into the idea of, uh, of a messianic transformation of the world. So what happened was after the, uh, after the Abbasid revolution, the Shi were kind of disappointed because they had hoped that there would be a, a Shia caliphate. And what they found instead was that they were still a sort of minority and a persecuted minority within the Abbasid caliphate. Now, the Shia were driven underground and eventually uh, a Shia leader whose name was Ubaidallah moved from Syria, where he was hiding out, to the Islamic West, to Tunisia. And he established, he managed to establish, taking advantage of, of sort of political discontent with the Abbasids there, he managed to establish essentially a little kingdom. And once he did that, he declared himself to be the caliph of Islam, a Shia caliph of Islam. And this was about a decade or so before Abdurrahman III took that step. So Abdurrahman's declaration of the caliphate was not unprecedented, okay? This Shia caliphate had already been established in Tunisia as a challenge to the Abbasids. Now, and I'm sorry, this is so complicated. So the Shia caliphate is in Tunisia. The Umayyads are in uh, Al-Andalus. And what the two uh, uh, kingdoms find themselves is they're at odds over control of North Africa. So this new uh, Shia caliphate, which was known as the Fatimids, right, are waging a hot and cold war against the Umayyads for control of basically Morocco and Algeria. Morocco and Algeria are important because they're stepping stones to, uh, uh, to Central African trade routes that bring up valuable commodities such as gold, slaves, and ivory to the Mediterranean. And it's really because of this that uh, the Umayyads are forced to sort of up the ante ideologically. And in the face of the claims of, of, of these Fatimids in Tunisia, that they are the, the true caliphs of Islam, Abdurrahman III feels that it's the moment and it's necessary to declare himself to be caliph in order to put a, a break on these Fatimid claims of legitimacy. Up until that point in time, shortly before the, the declaration of the, the new state by Abdel Rahman III, 
is there anything in the evidence about diplomatic efforts in in some way and if not deemed exactly as within the context of dip, diplomatic efforts uh correspondence between the emirate of cordoba and the fatimids in northern africa yeah certainly i mean there was uh you know a lot of correspondence and uh obviously diplomatic connections you know but the real sort of diplomacy was going on not between uh, the Fatimids and uh, the Umayyads in Cordoba, but rather between the Fatimids and important families within the Umayyad Emirate of Cordoba. You see, the Umayyad Emirate was in this process of transformation as well. And, you know, previous to, uh, in the first century of its existence, the rulers of of Umayyad Cordoba had only held very tenuous control over, uh, over Islamic Spain. And I mean that in the sense that, uh, you know, they were not regarded as, uh, you know, kings or emperors. They were regarded by the people they ruled over, by which I mean, you know, the powerful, uh, you know, warlords that controlled different parts of Islamic Spain. They were sort of seen as as firsts among equals. This is an old sort of the old traditional way of of seeing kingship in in in, in or leadership in, in the Arab world, or for that matter, you know, across what we might call the barbarian world on the outside of the you know outside of the imperial world. And so, after 850 or so, when as I was saying, these, these scholars and intellectuals and administrators were coming over from the Abbasid East and settling in Cordoba. They inspired the Umayyad emirs to sort of try to form a, a, a more centralized state. And as the Umayyads attempted to do this, as they attempted to consolidate their power and develop a, a sort of bureaucratic administration, right? This was met by resistance by these local warlords who essentially controlled the country for them. And so from 850 or so, uh, Al-Andalus was plunged into a sort of long civil war as the emirs tried to reshape the political character of the kingdom and these local warlords fought back and resisted. Incidentally, a number of these local warlords were members of old families that had been rulers when Spain was under the Visigoths. So we're talking about families that had been, uh, you know, that were a Visigothic or Roman heritage that had survived the transition to Islamic rule, had converted to Islam and sort of maintained their power. And they saw these centralizing policies as a threat to their autonomy. And so what happened was, was that the Fatimids started communicating with them and cultivating them as potential allies, right? Because the dangerous situation for uh, the Umayyads was that if the Fatimids said that they were caliphs, uh, these local uh, warlords might recognize them, recognize the Fatimids as the, as the caliphs, and therefore be able to throw off their loyalty to the Umayyads. And so Abdul Rahman III kind of had to take that step to ensure that there couldn't be a rationalization 
for these rebels to resist him. Can you speak about Brian? And it, it and it might be a bit outside of the demarcation of this conversation today, but I think it is a constructive question to ask, given some of the information that we've discussed so far. So up until this point in time, if the the emir of the emirate of Cordoba had not declared himself to be a caliph, what what and and it is a Muslim-centric state, and there is a caliphate, the Abbasid Caliphate, that existed at that point in time. Can you can you share what the relationship and that dynamic would have been then with the the people of the Emirate of Cordoba and the and the Islamic religion? And then there's the dynamic of the Abbasid Caliphate, which you shared certainly was antagonistic with the the Omayyads. Do you you know what I'm getting at with that question, that dynamic? Can you expand on how that would have functioned from that that relationship between the Omayyads and the Abbasids and it being a Muslim-centric state? Yeah, I think I know what you're getting at. And let me let me approach it this way. Uh, when we look at, at, for example, European history, where we have this uh, idea of uh, that the that the state or or the kingdom at this point was sort of what shaped. Uh, let me see how I could say this: people, sort of um, political and religious uh, allegiances and affiliations. And that really wasn't the case in the Islamic world. And you'll have to bear with me because it's, it's a little bit of a, of a subtle thing. And the best way to explain it probably is if you think about how laws work, the way that laws work in, say, Western Europe, in Christian Europe, is that there's a notion that, that kings make laws, Right. And so a king's laws are what kind of defines uh, the political sphere that people live in. Now, that's not the case in the Islamic world, because in the Islamic world, kings didn't make laws and caliphs didn't make laws. Laws came about uh, through, the, through the mediation and the interpretation of Islamic scripture by a group known as the ulama. The ulama simply means learned Muslims. Okay, it's an informal group that includes uh, all of the people who are uh, educated in Islam and who are sort of uh, intellectually and scholarly qualified to interpret Islamic law. So law in the Islamic world does not correspond uh, to the state. So all across the Islamic world, whether you are in the caliphate of uh, of Cordoba, the Fatimid Caliphate uh, in Tunisia, which would eventually be based in Egypt, actually, or the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad, essentially the same laws apply to you. They weren't dependent on what kingdom you lived in, right? And what that meant was that the political identity of your king 
was not really so important in terms of your religious identity. And what this meant was that because the laws didn't change from one place to another, people could travel, for example, across the Islamic world from, from Cordoba to Baghdad and back, and without really having a sense that they, they hadn't left home. It's kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing to, to get your head around, but, but the political power of the caliphs did not shape people's daily lives. And so there was no sort of necessarily, people didn't see it necessarily as a contradiction uh, that they lived in uh, under the rule of the Fatimids or the Amayas in Cordoba in terms of how that affected their Islamic uh, identity or their identity as Muslims or the laws that applied to them. So for ordinary people, it really wasn't an issue. The time that it becomes an issue is when you're a sort of local ruler or local potentate, and you are articulating who you should be loyal to, right? So when the Fatimids and the Umayyads were clashing, right, they not only you know, fought against each other using their armies and the armies of proxies, right, but they could try to sort of undermine each other by claiming or appealing to each other's subordinates, their local rulers, the nobility, as it were, and kind of tempt them or leverage them into shifting their allegiance over. Did the Emirate of Cordoba recognize, officially recognize, the caliph? the Abbasid Caliph of the given time. And did that Caliph, Khalifa, have any, any authority at all in the affairs of the Emirate of Cordoba? None, none. By this time, you know, when, uh, when Abdurrahman I established himself as the uh, Emir of Cordoba, there was a period in which, you know, the Abbasids tried to kind of foment rebellion in Al-Andalus. And basically the only thing they could do, they couldn't launch an army against Al-Andalus. That was not going to happen, right? The only thing they could do is they could appeal to local rulers within Al-Andalus who were maybe, you know, not happy with uh, Umayyad rule or who coveted the power themselves. And they, they could say, if you can overthrow Abdurrahman, we will make you the ruler of Al-Andalus. So it was only a kind of very soft sort of power that they could exert. And it was ultimately unsuccessful. And so, you know, both the Umayyads in Cordoba and the Abbasids in Baghdad, they kind of had to live with each other. I mean, there was always a sort of, you know, hostile rhetoric between them, but they were in no position to, to really affect any, any real change against each other. If scripture and doctrine governed the, the rules and the laws, what do you think was the, the, the need that Abdel Rahman III had in declaring himself a caliph? And I understand what you, what you said about the, 
the Fatimids. And so there's, there's an individual there who declared himself as a caliph. But if so, again, so if, if it's scripture and doctrine that governs rules and laws, what do you think was the, 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 the real, the real need for Abdel Rahman the third to make that declaration? Does it have anything to do with the Fatimids, the Fatimids prescribing to a different sect of Islam or something else? You know, I think it, it, it basically comes down to uh, a question of prestige and, you know, uh, the additional sort of uh, power that gives to you. So when, you know, once uh, he had declared himself uh, caliph and positioned himself as, uh, you know, at least in, in his own eyes, as the ultimate authority in Islam, uh, you know, this gave him, again, this sort of leveled the field or gave him an advantage vis-a-vis -vis the Fatimids as they competed in North Africa, right? Because as they tried to, as both the Fatimids and the Umayyads tried to uh, extend their power in North Africa and get control of these super lucrative uh, trade routes to, towards Central Africa, they did this by recruiting uh, local tribes as allies and as clients. And, you know, obviously uh, the prestige that uh, the title of caliph carries is much more than uh, the title of emir. Uh, emir just means you're another prince, right? Caliph puts you in a category above your subordinates and your clients, and it's more attractive to them to pledge their allegiance to someone who's more powerful than them, and it sort of gives you more of a sense uh, or of a, you know, it allows you to project more authority over them and to, to, to work to better consolidate your power. You mentioned prestige. Is there anything in, in practice that would allow a recognized caliph to be able to do that an emir would not be able to do? And I'm, I'm speaking in the context of the decision in this case that Abdel Rahman III made. Do you know or believe if if he he felt that there was additional functional capabilities that he would be able to access in being a caliph versus an emir? Well, I think a, a good way to think about it is it's not a it's not a uh... Uh, you know, a, a precise uh, analogy, but it's kind of like the difference between a king and an emperor in in the Christian world. You know, it's it's great to be a king, right? But the emperor is of a higher grade. And so if you're taking the title of an emperor, there's an implication that, you know, you're not just another ruler. You're like, the ruler of the world. And what that means is that at least in theory, you have the right to, you know, decide who gets to be a king and who doesn't get to be a king. And so again, I think it's it's mostly a case of 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 how one positions oneself uh, towards one's subordinates. And once you say that you're caliph, 
and uh, then it becomes sort of it it becomes very difficult for them to challenge your power legitimately right whereas if you were just an emir it's kind of it would be like a struggle against equal uh, between equals and so that's no longer the case once that title is adapted you know in terms of formal prerogatives you know there are some such as you know uh, for example you know the right to mint gold coins and stuff like that but these are sort of uh you know uh, minor issues that that you know don't really necessarily uh, affect uh, the exercise of power. The what year did the Fatimids form, and is there a specific year? And if not, uh, circa is perfectly fine. That the civil war you mentioned there was a civil war in Al-Andalus, when, when would that have began? Well, the, you know, the civil war in Al-Andalus was sort of an ongoing thing. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because uh, uh, historians have tended to describe the, these civil wars as a series of rebellions against this centralized Umayyad state, right? But really what was happening was the opposite. Uh, as I was saying, you know, uh, Muslim control and Arab control over Al-Andalus was very tenuous from the beginning. Uh, very, you know, the, the Muslim army that conquered Al-Andalus was, was quite small. Uh, there were very few Arabs uh, in it. They were in the leadership positions. But so control was always tenuous. And the only way that, that uh, the Muslims could rule after they took over was by co-opting local rulers, as I said, uh, you know, uh, Christian local rulers who were, you know, ultimately of Visigothic or, or, or Roman origin and incorporating them into their political system. And these local rulers uh, eventually converted to Islam and were integrated into, uh, into the uh, Arabo-Islamic kind of political structure. But, you know, they didn't see themselves necessarily as, you know, clearly subordinates to the emir in Cordoba. You know, they saw it as kind of a partnership. And so, you know, from the mid-ninth century onwards, as the Umayyad emirs began to try to develop a more centralized state, these local princes, these local rulers and local warlords saw that as a challenge and an erosion of their autonomy. And so they began to rebel. And when they rebelled against the Umayyads, they looked for allies wherever they could find them. Uh, you know, sometimes they turned to, you know, the little Christian principalities that were on the, on the periphery of uh, Muslim Al-Andalus, and they would form alliances with them. So it was only natural that when the Fatimids appeared, right, they would be another potential ally uh, for these, uh, you know, local warlords to resist the centralizing policies of the Umayyads. So it was really a, a process that, that played out over the course of, of more than half a century. And one of the reasons why Abdurrahman III could declare himself caliph in 929 was because he had finally succeeded in putting down the last rebellion. So he had consolidated uh, Umayyad rule over Al-Andalus. And then that was the moment to kind of to seal it by saying, okay, and now that I rule over you, I'm the caliph. Like, there'll be no more rebellions. 
did he declare himself caliph before or after the civil war was complete? After, after. Once he had sort of, there were a couple persistent rebellions. There was a, a famous one, an individual in the just south of Cordoba by the name of, uh, of Ibn Hafsun, who was a, a descendant of Christians and who developed a local power base south of, the, south of Cordoba and uh, took advantage of uh, the instability within the ruling Umayyad family to, to plant the flag of rebellion. And he came very close, actually. At one point, his armies were at the gates of Cordoba. Uh, and he was looking for allies wherever he could get them. As I say, he was reaching out to Christians in the north. He was reaching out to the Fatimids. And so this really became a kind of fight to the death uh, for the Umayyad dynasty. And uh, eventually, uh, Abdurrahman III triumphed and uh, crushed uh, Ibn Hafsun and uh, suppressed his family. And that was the sort of that was the last great rebellion. And once that was completed, the way was clear uh, for this declaration because Abdurrahman had had indeed consolidated his power. When you've gone through the records and associated evidence on this topic, are there two or three major factors that you believe allowed? Uh, Abdel Rahman III and his dynasty to be successful in the civil war. Is there two or three major factors that stand out that you believe influenced his side being successful? Well, yeah, there was a couple things. One is that, uh, you know, there was a problem prior to the reign of Abdel Rahman. Uh, you know, one of the one of the features of, uh, of, uh, of Islamic rulership is that it's affected by the fact that uh, Muslim, uh, Muslims are uh, allowed by Islamic law to be polygamous, right? Muslims can have uh, up to four wives. And so uh, rulers uh, typically uh, not only had, had several wives, often four, but they had lots of concubines to slave women that they would have uh, sex with. And what this did was it produced uh, a lot of uh, children for the caliphs and a lot of potential heirs to the throne. Now, in a way, this is a good thing because it's good to have a, a large selection of potential heirs because then as, as, as emir or, or caliph, you're allowed to pick which son is going to uh, succeed you, right? So that's kind of an advantage of polygamy. You have a big pool to deal with. Now, the disadvantage is that particularly because these different children, uh, if you're the emir, you have these different children, because they come from different wives, they don't necessarily identify uh, 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 together. In fact, they tend to identify uh, with their mother. So what this means is that within the royal family, there's a dynamic of competition in which the various royal wives try to ensure that their son is going to succeed uh, as the next emir or the next caliph, right? So there's this kind of built-in conflict. And in fact, what happened was the, uh, the emir who was ruling in the mid-8th century, uh, Muhammad I, 
had uh, two sons. Well, he had more children than that, but but two sons who were sort of candidates for uh, for potentially for succeeding him. All right, one was Almunder, and one was Muhammad II, and they were half brothers. And so, what that meant was that while uh, Muhammad the first was trying to consolidate his rule, he had these two sons of his who were who were kind of trying to undo each other and undermine each other. Now, eventually, his first son, Al-Mundir, inherited the throne, but in 888, two years later, he was killed, probably by his brother, Muhammad II. Muhammad II comes to power. He finds himself ruling over a, a divided kingdom and finally ends up naming Abdurrahman III, the son of the brother that he likely killed as his successor. So when Abdurrahman III came to the throne, right, there was at least for the first time in several decades, there was a sense of solidarity within the Umayyad family. No one was challenging him for his position of power. So that gave him an advantage. And the other thing was that Abdurrahman III was really, you know, uh, a brilliant uh, tactician. And uh, when he came to the throne as prince in 912, right, so 17 years before he declared himself caliph, he really did a good job of systematically overwhelming each of the various rebels that he faced one at a time, then consolidating his power, and then moving on to the next one. And so in that way, in those intervening 17 years, he managed to subdue all of Al-Andalus. So to, you know, uh, a great extent, it was, you know, Abdurrahman III's personal, personal talents and characteristics that were responsible for this. On the other hand, it was also because he wasn't facing any competition or any serious competition within his own family. So he could count on, you know, uh, having a solid backing from the larger Umayyad family. Okay. And tangentially, the show has covered the Kingdom of Macedon a few times in the past, and that kind of tangentially, that familial competition that you were describing there, Brian, has uh, come up in, in that context in the past with, uh, with uh, the Kingdom of Macedon. So yeah, I mean, this is this is a standard dynamic, uh, you know, in, in the in the pre modern world. So you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be so surprising. We see the same thing happening in, you know, in medieval Europe when, uh, you know, a king has, has several sons often, even though they, they are sons by the same mother, they'll, you know, set out to undermine each other and steal the throne from each other. So it's, it's not really so different in the Islamic world. The only difference is that these, these royal sons or royal brothers feel even less of a connection because they have different mothers and there tends to be more of them. So it just kind of intensifies that that dynamic of division and competition. Once the state identified itself as a caliphate, so the caliphate of Cordoba versus the emirate of Cordoba, did it functionally change at all? And if so, how? Well, I think that it was in, uh, to a certain extent, yes. and. You know, one of the one of the the and it's 
this is actually quite important because one of the things that as the Umayyads adopted this, um, as the Umayyads made the transformation to becoming caliphs, and as they completed this process of adopting the sort of the political culture and the administrative culture of, uh, of the Abbasid Caliphate, they adopted the Abbasid, Cali the Abbasid Caliphate's approach to kingship. And this is kind of a, 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 an Eastern tradition, uh, an Eastern Mediterranean tradition, which you can see the Abbasids inherited from Persia. And this is the idea that, you know, the king or the emperor rather, or the caliph is really a sort of, he's not just another person, but he's, he's a, a special person that has a special relationship with God, essentially. He's a, he's a person who is a part. And so both Persian kings and the Abbasid caliphs, the Fatimid caliphs, and eventually the Umayyad caliphs, once they had adopted this, this position, they kind of detached themselves from the people that they ruled over, right? And you can see this in, in Al-Andalus after Abdurrahman had declared himself caliph, right? He moved out of Cordoba. He founded uh, about seven miles away from Cordoba an immense new uh, palace uh, self-contained administrative city and palace, a kind of Versailles, right? And ensconced himself there. Now, on the one hand, this increased his power and prestige because now he's seen as this special person living in this isolated uh, palace, but it cut him off from the people that he ruled over. And it made the power of the bureaucrats and the administrators who were running the kingdom all the greater. Because now he was sort of cut off behind the veil. He became a figure rather than an actor, right? And this is what, in fact, led to the decline and ultimately the demise of not only of the Caliphate of Cordoba, but also the Fatimid Caliphate and the Abbasid Caliphate. Because once the caliph becomes this isolated figure that no one has access to, this abstract figure, in a way he's more powerful. But what that means is if the administrators and generals are the ones who are ruling the empire, then they begin jockeying for power, right? And this, in effect, leads to tension and ultimately civil wars. And this is what, in fact, brought down, as I said, the Umayyads, the Fatimids, and the Abbasids. So it's this kind of process of political evolution that eventually leads to extinction. Is there anything in the records with, with substantial evidence showing that Abdel Rahman III began to take on religious du duties in a, in a material way once he in, in terms of what would be his responsibilities as, as a caliph. So once he, once he made that declaration of being a caliph, is there evidence that he began to take on um, duties associated with being a caliph? 
Yeah, there are some indications, although I'm not sure to what extent he might have done these beforehand when he was just an emir. But for example, as Khalif, uh, you know, you're expected to, because you have this special relationship with God, uh, you know, you're called on for certain occasions. So, you know, for example, uh, the the major uh, holidays of uh, of the Islamic uh, religious year would be marked by you know massive public ceremonies in which the caliph would appear, and this served to kind of reinforce his power and prestige, and also to let his subjects know that he was still alive. By the way, because otherwise he was tucked away in the palace and nobody saw him, right? Or for example, when there were serious droughts, the caliphs would participate in the processions and the rituals that were designed to, you know, bring rain. So that kind of thing, yes, definitely. But again, the difference between, you know, what we think of the Christian world and uh, the Islamic world is that, you know, the caliphs were not popes. You know, they didn't spend a lot of time or have a lot of authority to change religious doctrine at all. That was in the hands of the religious scholars. So the caliphal role in these uh, religious ceremonies was really one more of prestige than anything else. That palace that you described there and mentioned a, a few times, does that exist today or are there any remnants of it? Absolutely. Uh, it exists. It's a wonderful site that's just been reworked with an excellent museum. It's called Medina Tazaha. It's actually a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so it was this hugely massive palace that was constructed outside Cordoba. And then it was absolutely destroyed. It was, you know, essentially wiped off the face of the earth in the, in the civil wars that brought down uh, the caliphate uh, in the early 11th centuries. And it was eventually rediscovered in the late 19th or early 20th century and, uh, and then began to be excavated. And now there are really significant uh, significant structures that have been found and reconstructed and that remain. It's really, if you visit Cordoba, it's kind of a, it's definitely a must-see uh, stop. Okay. It was uh, good chatting with you again today, Brian. This was an interesting conversation. Thanks for coming on the show again. Yeah, my pleasure. Always uh, great to be here and uh, happy to come back. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Thanks, Brian. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned as an example at the start of the episode that Professor Catlos wrote, Kingdoms of Faith, A New History of Islamic Spain. He's also co-director of the Mediterranean Seminar. I'll drop a link to the seminar and a link to the book in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Brian and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.